Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network. Automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. Welcome to Heavy Networking. Our topic today, VAR life. What's going on at value-added resellers? What are the folks that are working at VAR seeing in their customer needs and demands? And what kind of conversations are they having? And our guest today is Remington Luce. Remington, welcome to Heavy Networking. And hey, uh, in a sentence or two, just introduce yourself. Hey, thanks, Ethan. My name is Remington Luce. I work as a solutions architect for a mid-sized value-added reseller in the primarily in the Southeast United States called Dynamics Group. And you and I have been chatting in the back channel a bit as we were developing the show with the idea of, well, what are people, you know, boots on the ground actually asking VARs for? What sort of technology is interesting to them? Because, I, Greg, I got, you got to admit, I mean, you and I get into all these conversations with the vendors about all the latest and greatest and the fancy stuff. And then sometimes we get feedback like, do you guys ever talk about anything real? So yeah. so Remington, I guess that's that's what you're here for, to give us that Oh. reality check. So uh, so, so let's start with this. What what new technologies are you seeing customers actually interested in? They're actually buying this stuff. And then why are they buying it? What are the drivers? Yeah. So um, security tools, as you guys are probably well aware, due to all of the things that are happening in the news are really kind of exploding. Um, I've had it, especially recently with cybersecurity insurance related concerns and you mentioned a little bit about that too, uh, Greg, thinking that it's going to cause some behavior changes, and it really has. Um, so a lot of customers are reaching out. They they have changing requirements to continue to meet their um, their needs for insurance, and so they have to have more products put into the mix. They have to have more visibility, more control. They need to get that stuff implemented. That's usually on a really tight timeline. Um, so I can dig a little bit more into that too if we want, but security is a huge one. Well, you, um, you said insurance yeah, but, as a driver, which actually I wasn't expecting. Does that mean they're trying to get cyber insurance policies and the the insurers are coming back? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, most customers at this point end up having something, right? Just because you need, you, if you get into a major breach situation, you you need to be able to call on someone to, to put some extra resources in immediately. And that gets expensive, you know, um, to remediate. Uh, you have to scrub, you have to do all kinds of efforts, right? And so that that becomes very expensive very quickly. Um, and so so most of them have something, they have a, a policy. And as part of that policy, right, just like any other kind of policy you'd have, there are requirements that that you have to comply with in order to to keep your rate at a reasonable level. So, you know, if you don't comply, then your rate goes up, right? And um, so in order to meet that requirement, they have to deploy new things. So for instance, if you don't have multi-factor authentication across the board, which has become a real hot button topic for a lot of my customers lately, um, you know, you need to go deploy that and you need to get it done in a, yep. you know, 60, 90, 120 day interval um, across the entirety of, of your company. So that, yeah, that's cyber insurance is, is odd that way that a lot of people don't realize that if you sign up for cyber insurance policy, it's not like car insurance Yeah, where they just say, yeah, sure. Here's your car insurance. And you know, because the way insurance works is there has to be a pool of people contributing money into a fund and then a certain number of payouts go out and then the insurance company gets a profit out of what's left, right? Right. And for cyber insurance, the pool is small, premiums are large, and what the cyber insurance companies are realizing is that the risks are very high and that's right. the payouts are very large. And the cyber insurance is now putting conditions on saying you must meet a minimum level of security, and that is – you must have a certain type of firewall. You must have certain policies. We have to do audits before we'll sign off on your policy and stuff like that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's exactly what's driving those those changes, right? So it's not that you, like most types of insurance, right? It's not that you couldn't get insurance. It's just that the cost of your insurance will go up if you cannot comply with these additional yes. security mm-hmm. concern, you know, controls. Because it's, yeah, the, to your point, right? It's it's a risk business, right? So yeah. the, anything you can do to deleverage that risk means, you know, you don't have to get paid as much because the probability of you having a problem is reduced. Yeah. And the a lot of the cyber insurance policies come with uh, services attached so that in the event that you need to recover from a ransomware event, the cyber insurers 
we'll bring in a team of professional people, professionals, you know, so-called cybersecurity professionals yep. to do the remediation, to handle the ransomware demand and things like that. That's part of the policy, right? Yeah, it, it can be. Yeah. Um, I've, I've had fortunately only a very small number of customers that ever have to go through that experience, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. They can. Um, it's much, I, I mean, I shouldn't say it's better. If you don't have a strong plan for what to do when that happens and you don't have some idea of who you're going to reach out to right out of the gate, I think it mm-hmm. can end up being a better situation just because otherwise you're in a world where something happens, right? And you're not even really sure where to begin, right? You don't know how the scale of it, you don't know the size of it, you don't know how much they have. You know, it's like any kind of break-fix situation only uh, on top of it, you may not be able to recover, right? Unless you either get pay for the ransom and, and you get decryption capabilities or have the ability to restore back out of it. Um, so yeah. it, it creates a lot of, uh, a lot of yeah, ongoing it, concern too, right? Like you never know, that, am I clean again? So Yeah. And, and from a customer's point of view, that means that if it happens, I'm covered. I don't have to go and find a security team. That's I don't have to select a provider, get three quotes, go through purchasing, or yeah. I've got somebody who's got a known good team of professionals. That's right. And that insurance process isn't new. Uh, different insurance companies uh, in different countries Sometimes, uh, for example, in Australia, for example, when your car goes, if you have a car accident, the insurance company will tow it free of charge to one of their certified repairers who will repair it free of charge and then give it back to you. You don't choose it and then an assessment. But in other countries, the insurance, your car goes to a facility, then an insurance assessor comes out and assesses the damage and then approves, signs off on the repairs and things like that. There's different ways insurance policies go and the same applies to cyber insurance. And it also depends on the legal jurisdiction you're in. But that's really interesting that um, you're seeing this as like a key business activity for companies. That's their reaction to the breaches and the risks that now exist in the market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so security is a huge one. Automation has a lot of push too, um, as I'm, I'm sure you guys are aware in all the things that you get briefed on and in your conversations with folks, but automation is really a big one. Um, and it's it's interesting too. There are there are people that are looking for comprehensive, mm. wide scale. I want to figure out how to build an automation practice and help me go do DevOpsy stuff, right? I'm going to take my whole company and team into it. And, but, but, but more than that, really, even is just little pieces, right? I have customers that say, "Hey, we're we're doing this migration. We're doing uh, this this cutover from one platform to a new platform, say on a firewall or something like that." And we want an automated way to make a lot of those changes going forward, right? So it's it's not even necessarily that I need to come up with or build a whole practice, but I need a way, a repeatable way that I want to do this going forward. And you know, mm. the the bar and the difficulty there is is of course much lower um, in that instance. Yeah, so. one one set of uh, pain points versus I want you to automate my entire network. If you if you narrow the scope, then it's easier to implement that automation. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's much, 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 much easier. Plus, it makes it easier too. From if you're who your customer is that's consuming the automation, right? So if if I don't have to worry about trying to build some giant interconnected system that's going to feed into you know app developers, you know, basically having a service catalog that says spin up all the seven hundred widgets I need in order to have my application web facing and secure and and compliant and logged and all that, right? Versus Hey, I've got a network engineer who can, you know, edit a text file and then rerun a Python script. You know, that's that's a much lower bar. It's still automation. It's still great. It's still the same benefits, you know. But it's it's a it's a much lower bar. It's much easier for us to help support and execute on and and so forth. Um, you know, we need it too, right? Because uh, we're under pressure for efficiency reasons, right? And so, um, as a value-added reseller, having automation in our own process means that we can take effort that we did once, and then we can, you know, accelerate. Um, accelerate the work for the next 50, 100, how many ever projects. Once you do an automation, you can then go and deliver it to multiple customers, presumably. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep, 100%. So, so, so what, what automation then is interesting? You're doing open source stuff, Ansible and some Python, or are you actually yeah. partnering with like an automation company, uh, someone that's a specialist? Yeah, that's a great question. So the answer is both, right? So again, I work for a mid-sized reseller. So we don't have a bench of people to do every single possible thing um, that we might want to do. And so we have partner capabilities when we reach into those partner capabilities when we either, A, we personally need to get a really big kind of thing done. So we have to say we have a big project and we we know that we're going to want to leverage some kind of automation for it. 
we don't necessarily have the time or the skills to execute writing all that or doing that ourselves. So we were going to go reach into that pool and, and, and pull them in and give them the requirements and let them do what they're good at and then go you know execute and use that tool once it's done. Or when we have those customer use cases where, hey, we want to do a whole bunch of automation related things. We want to start a practice from scratch. We're going to go pull those people in because that's that's what they're there for. It's interesting from the VAR perspective, it, it, it's kind of like uh, if you build a website for someone and that's your specialty, you probably have that customer for a long time to do website updates. Okay, if you're the automation specialist, you build the thing for that customer, there's in, in theory some long-term recurring revenue as they need you to update the tool or give them some other tools. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's 100% true. Now, we haven't really hit that um, phase of the experience in automation yet. Um, at least for us, we have not hit that phase so most of the things that we're helping customers do, we either that kind of goes on and lives in their own environment and they've got people that are dedicated, right? So this is like a large scale kind of thing where they're going to own it and they're going to run it long term. And, and really, we may roll off, right, and from that experience. Or, like I said, it's more of this smaller pointed, hey, I'm doing this, hey, I'm doing that kind of thing. But that said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do see there are cases where we've done something for a customer that's automation related and they come back and they say, hey, we want to just extend this to do this other little thing. Can you help us do that, right? It's okay. Hey, can you help us extend this so that it can do this other little thing, right? So, so that's definitely uh, definitely the case. And um, How many right. customers are asking you for automation? How many customers are saying, hey, I don't actually want to own this infrastructure. Can you just do the thing? And, and, and they want you as a VAR to be more like an MSP. Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, yes, uh, there, there are definitely a good number of those. And actually, probably... I won't say I won't say all customers, but nearly every single customer that I I can think of off the top of my head right now that I've worked with in the last two years has some component of managed service type capability that they are interested in, and it could be a small point piece. Um, it may not be. So I'm not talking about the full MSP, right? That you're offshoring everything, and you know you pay one check, and it it provides you with the hardware and the services and the support and the updates and all that, right? And that's not what I mean at all. Although there there are some instances of that. Um, I mean, a lot more, uh, let's say the security thing, for instance, right? I, I need a SOC. I need 24 by 7 monitoring of my infrastructure because of either my own personal reasons, because of my compliance reasons, or because of other audit requirements, right? So those people are expensive. And for a certain size company, they that's cost prohibitive. Like They need it, but they can't necessarily provide it using their own individuals. Or they may just have difficulty acquiring or maintaining talent, right? That's another, another mm. major problem. Um, All the executives are incompetent at maintaining talent and people just keep leaving because they're horrible. Uh, this is also a strong possibility. <laughs> There's two sides to that coin. Yeah. <laughs> when an executive uh, says, I have massive problems retaining talent, I always look at the executive and go, oh, wow, yeah. how much of a surprise, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> and inside, and Greg's inside voice is going, you scumbag. <laughs> you are horrible to work for. Yeah, it is uh, it is interesting sometimes to deal with uh, multiple levels, you know, inside of a customer and and uh, yeah. get multiple viewpoints on the problem, right? Uh, and see how, how, you know, kind of how that shakes out. But yeah, absolutely. Management is a, is a big part of why people stay or go and, and how they get treated and what they get to do, right? Um, but um, so the managed services is a big thing, especially around security. Um, but there are other places too, right? I mean... Sometimes uh, a lot of our customers, we sell, you know, IBM power hardware and, um, and, yeah. you know, the skills there are, are going away. I mean, the, it's an aging workforce, no offense to anybody who's doing that. It's not meant to be offensive in any way, but it's going away. And so, um, a lot of customers have difficulty maintaining talent for that. And so they have a business that runs on it. The cost to replatform it is prohibitive or they're not interested in going through the effort to do that. And so yeah. they want to keep with what they've got. It works well for them. It does what they need it to do. And they just need to get somebody who can keep it breathing. So they want to outsource that piece. Um, so that's pretty common too. It's a shame, isn't it, though, in that sense? Um, if companies want to be digital, you know, we talk a lot about digital transformation and dynamic infrastructure and fluid applications that follow the business speed to change. And yet so much of the customer base actually don't want any of that. Yes. Is that, yeah, I, I mean, that's, an, that's, that's true, isn't it? It's hundred percent true. This is the one. Uh, this is the one thing that I was. Uh, if if you joined Greg, I was a little worried that you were going to come at me for. If I may say, was you know, 
But, but, you know, Hey, I, I kind of look at it. I, I go both ways, right? Like I obviously want customers to get a best possible experience and to move forward and to do, you know, new and exciting things that I think will drive their business. But at the same time, I kind of recognize it as, you know, what the, they say with the space race, right? You know, uh, the United States spent a lot of time, money and effort to build a pen that could write upside down and in a vacuum and, and the Russians sent a pencil, you know? Um, so it's kind of that too, right? Like, you know, yeah. you're a smaller pipe fitting slash pipe generation company, and you're in a more remote portion of the Southeast United States, like, hey, you know, you've got set supplier relationships, excuse me, set supplier relationships. You've got set customer relationships. You know, your business mm-hmm. is pretty static, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, how much- And it's really established, grow? the workforce knows where they are. Yeah. I the mean, profits are you- rolling in. Yeah. They, you know, not everybody in the world is trying to achieve 250,000% growth and, you know, scale the workforce by hiring a thousand people a day and all that silliness that goes on. hundred percent. You know, a lot of the times they just, you know, oh, I have to upgrade my perfectly good, perfectly fine 35 year old. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, why? Well, because they don't make it anymore. You know, I'm yeah. not upgrading it because it's working fine. You were happy with the number of headcount, you know, we yeah. don't want to move to the cloud. We don't want to replatform. I, I think there's a lot more of that than most people let on. It, and there's, there's a, a lot, lot of there. people who are cloud huggers, like the cloud huggers used to make jokes of server huggers, mm-hmm. but it's on the other foot now. I think there's a lot of people out there going like, it's got to be in the cloud and don't take my cloud away from me. And those people are very loud and very aggressive on social media and they post blog posts and get on podcasts. But I genuinely believe that the bulk of the market is doing what it's always done. No, I think that's there's a there's a reasonable level of that for sure. You know, mm-hmm. if if you had to ask a lot of customers if they would be willing to give up, say twenty percent stability to get five percent growth, um, the majority of them would probably say no, right? And mm-hmm. really, that's what you're talking about, right? You're talking about potentially trading off some stability in your infrastructure for growth, and um, for a lot of those businesses, it, it just doesn't make sense, you know. Do you feel Remington that? the market opportunity for VARs is actually expanding because of the complexity of infrastructure or it's kind of the same or maybe even diminishing a bit? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one. I think it's expanding, but it's difficult, right? So I feel, honestly, I feel bad for a lot of the people um, who are, you know, in the, in the customer space who are trying to uh, stay up to date, you know, because the market is changing so fast and it's the, de- uh, the disaggregation that happens, right? The separation of all the pieces how much stuff you need in order to just get something done um, is 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 growing, right? And that increase in growth means that you've got to have more stuff. It means you've got to have more skills, which means you have to maintain more education. You've got more updates. You've got more vendor relationships to manage, you know, all of those things. So I do think that there is a expanding opportunity for resellers, right? Um, if you can put together a solution that will that will cross and put put those parts together, right? And in some cases, you know, some manufacturers they they try to target making one of everything for all the things that you might need to do, right? And they try to make that life easier by keeping it all inside of their ecosystem. And uh, of course, we can we can talk about how well um, some of those integrations work or don't work, really. But you know, <laughs> either way, you've got a lot of moving parts, right? You've got a lot of things that you're going to have to to put into place, and so it gives us an opportunity to. Um, sell more things and more services to customers to put those things together. That said, of course, there's always you know pressure on margins related to anything that's becoming more commoditized, and a lot of things mm-hmm. are more commoditized, right? So that's a that's a pressure. There's pressure from um, the manufacturers themselves in relation to services or in relation to the hardware. So that's a whole other kind of angle and area. But in general, I think that the opportunities are expanding, to be honest with you. Do you Uh, see cloud and public cloud adoption as taking business away from you because cloud, it's simple to operate and I can get things going or it's a market opportunity and that I cannot figure out AWS to save my life. Please come help me, VAR. Yeah. So the two answers there, right? So as a reseller, right? So if you take that literally, that means we're going to sell you a piece of hardware that's absolutely eating you know, the lunch there. I mean, because every time that someone spins something up, a CPU spun up in the cloud is a CPU they didn't buy on-prem. So, I mean, in all honesty, that's absolutely taking business away from the hardware sales. From the service perspective, though, you know, you're also absolutely correct that there's a lot of services component there. I mean, it's, I have a project with the customer I'm working on in relation to some Azure stuff. And, you know, there are many ways that you can connect to Azure and they all have ramifications in terms of, 
what their scale is, what their throughput is, how you configure them in the cloud, how you configure them between different portions of their cloud, right? Different say availability zones or regions or whichever term you want to use, depending on which cloud your uh, cloud services provider you're using. So interconnection between those um, has ramifications. The cost to move data between things has ramifications, right? So there are all these factors that kind of play into it. And, um, you know, customers, uh, when they're getting started, have difficulty in navigating that. And and we even have difficulty in navigating that. I mean, um, I mean, just being honest with you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated. And depending on what you're connecting to on-prem, it can mm. get complicated. So, I mean, and that's another question regarding cloud that are customers intending to get out of their physical on-prem stuff, except for maybe the access layer and move it all to cloud? Or is it this hybrid cloud? Now I got things in multiple places and I got to have it all connected forever and ever. Yeah. So the answer is both. I mean, we definitely have customers. Yeah. I mean, but seriously, yeah, there we we definitely have both. So we have customers, you know, that want to just run, you know, branch slash remote locations and everything's running in the cloud, right? And the way that their business is operated, you know, they can drive um, costs that they have in delivering their product or their service directly back to the resources that are required to generate it. And, and so they have a very tight, you know, connection and correlation between those things and they want them to scale in line with each other, right? And so they can leverage the cloud capabilities and and spinning up and spinning down and and lots of, you know, star as a service type items to um, to make that work for their business. And then we have other customers who you know, are being dragged into the cloud for a variety of reasons. It may be for management or or executive level reasons, right? That they mm-hmm. they want to move to the cloud because they see value there. Or they think things will be better. Got to have cloud on your resume. <laughs> so, <laughs> Never underestimate the power of putting some cloud, some AWS Azure on your resume. I, I, yeah, you know, I can't deny that there's probably <laughs> uh, a decent portion of that happening, to be honest with you. But but there are also sometimes where they get pulled into it for other things, right? So they yeah, may purchase yeah. some sort of service, right? That that runs out of AWS, right? I, I need to get connected to AWS now because mm-hmm. the thing that I'm I'm getting from this vendor, um, it runs out of AWS and their method of delivery is a VPN tunnel to AWS. So that's what I got to do now, right? Mm-hmm. And now, right. Yeah. now the customer's left going, okay, well, how, how can you get me a highly available redundant connectivity to AWS from my you know four primary data centers and hundreds of remote locations, right? And, and make it optimized and tell me when it breaks and, you know, da, 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 da. So, it's gotten a lot more complicated from that perspective. Remington, you mentioned hardware earlier in saying, hey, with you know, if you spin it up in the cloud, I'm losing margin on hardware. Are there sure. any points left in hardware? I mean, 20 years ago, I was working for a bar. <laughs> the points were pretty hard to come by. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the short answer is there are, um, depending on how things go. And obviously, there's a limit to uh, how much I can probably chat about that due to relationships of, with of you course, know, our yeah. resellers. But yeah. uh, but um, but there is margin in hardware. Um, it's not a lot of margin in hardware. There's uh, always pressure on the margins in hardware um, because you know you can go buy Cisco from almost anybody you want, right? And if you go to CDW, you can buy Cisco almost as if it's you know Amazon, right? Hey, I push a button, I get a switch. You know, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, but there, but you can, you can get now margin. buy Cisco directly from Amazon. There yeah. are Cisco yeah. stores. Oh yeah, yeah for yeah. the for the for the uh, home. SMB products, not right. for the. I I maintain that it should be all the way up to the top of the stack, but that's a different story. Yeah, so so that's an interesting thing, and uh, I, I'm, I'll 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 take a try to take, pick apart that uh, idea mm. in just a second, if I may. And I'm not disagreeing with you, Greg. I, I think mm. there's there's a thing there too. So, in terms of the hardware, there, there's more margin to be made, I think, if you are able to help show uh, the customer the value that you can bring to them, and then conversely also show. The hardware manufacturer, the value that you're bringing to the manufacturer and the customer. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you go out and you look in the switching market, for example, there are so many options. I mean, just trying to go figure out a basic layer two or layer three related type switch, right? Which one do I pick? And there are, I mean, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of options. And how do you differentiate between them? And how do you get the right one for you? And how do you ensure that you're getting the one that's most cost effective for the features that you need? And so that's where, as of far, in the truest sense of the original word, right? Mm. That's where you get to come in and try to help right-size what the customer's asking for to what they need. Now, to your point, Greg, it should be, I think, more transparent, easier all the way up the scale. Yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. But a lot of times, well, two customers don't know how to translate what they want which into is, a specific Which is model. crazy, right? Yeah. That's like saying you walk into a car yard and you don't understand the difference between a two-door hatch and a family wagon and a four-door sedan, right? And yet, Everybody does because that's a core life skill. And yet 
IT infrastructure professionals can't tell the difference between this server and that server, this switch and that switch. Now, I would raise the point that vendors make too many products for a market that doesn't particularly want a diverse set of products. There's no reason to have that many models of switch. There's no reason for chassis switches to exist going forward, (laughs) you know, that sort of stuff. And I think they deliberately do it to obfuscate the market and confuse the customer at this point. Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know that I can say that for sure, but I, I mean, it definitely does make uh, confusion, right? I mean, there are a lot of different models, you know, and um, and just picking which one you want, right? I mean, how much PoE do I need? How do I know how much mm. PoE I need? How much How much do I want to leave in my PoE Why are there switches forward? for the campus being sold that are not PoE? That's, we've had uh, PoE for 20 question. years. Why is it, why yeah. is it not a commodity? Sure. So, yeah, that's, you, yeah, go ahead, sorry. That, that, that's my point, right? 20 years in, PoE should not be a license upgrade or an extra feature. It should be standard feature. Yeah, no, it's a fair it's a fair point, right? And to your point even about what's the difference between a campus switch and a data center switch, and I'm sure I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble somewhere at some point for mm. having made that distinction. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, can you pass frames at 10 gig or can't you, right? It doesn't yeah. really cares where they originated. Uh, the difference right. between... Just to diverge into that, there are reasons, right? At the end of the day, the campus is built on a really cheap chip. The, the biggest cost inside of a switch is, uh, aside from the metalwork and the power supply, it's the ASIC inside. And a campus switch is using a really, really cheap chip that has much less sophistication and a very low, very high manufacturing thing. So typically they're well back on the 40 nanometer, 60 nanometer type scale. So they're using cheap fabs with designs that were done 20 years ago. Right, so they're done with a cheap, cheap production price, whereas data centers tend to be much more complex, right up on the leading edge. You're talking 20 nanometer, 15 nanometer processors, much higher densities to get all that sort of stuff. So there is a difference, but increasingly that difference is being taken away because now campus switches don't just forward packets; they also run overlays and do zero trust networking and all this other silliness that is just not needed, in my opinion. But that's a story for another day. Yeah, no, it's so you make a good point, though, about the feature set. And that's really what it comes down to. And that's where the number and variety of switches sort of originate, right? And being able to um, understand the vendor model, the the hardware manufacturer models, and knowing mm-hmm. what those features are, and, you know, which licenses you need to unlock said features if there are licenses. Is licensing as bad as, as like, we, we see people constantly complaining about vendor licensing? Is it as bad as what we hear? In my opinion, the answer to that is yes. Uh, yeah. It's it's um, it's hard, you know. Um, I I feel like I'm like, oh man, everything is hard. You know, that's not necessarily yeah. what I intend to say, but um, but it is. It it's um, the licensing models change, right? So which type of license you need to get different features over time has changed for different manufacturers. Some manufacturers approach licensing different than others in terms of what you you need to have to get different features out of the product portfolio, right? Uh, they have different tiers of license to get different things. And those different things are different depending on which yeah. switch line you're in, right? But so it, it just doesn't make sense. Like the licensing doesn't seem logical or coherent. It looks like they took a bunch of random ideas, tore them up into little pieces, threw them on the floor, and then picked up 20 of them and went, we're going to implement those. Yeah, uh, it is interesting. So just minor sidebar, right? I, I sat next to, I flew home from Cisco Live several years ago, and I sat down next to a guy. And I get on the plane, you know, you do your polite, hey, what do you do? And um, he was somewhere pretty high up in uh, the Cisco licensing portfolio. And you could tell the poor guy thought that he was about to just get the what for. And I was like, I think you have a very hard job, sir. And I wish you luck in continuing to try to do it well. And uh, I left the conversation there. I didn't beat him up at all. But uh, you could yeah, just you did. Like, like this guy. Yeah, you know? did. You gave him a horror story right <laughs> uh, there. Yeah, I did. I did. In I the like, nicest possible way, you just went... You lousy scum. <laughs> no, that wasn't my intention. No, that wasn't at all. It's just like, man, you got it. He's like, yeah, we're trying to make it more, you know, whatever. And I was like, I get it. You know, well, so clearly, he failed. clearly he failed. Clearly he failed because it's miserable I, I, out there. Uh, I've heard stories of hard, people literally you know? kidding, quitting vendor life, like quitting selling products, getting away from it, or quitting particularly Cisco licensing is the one I've heard. People literally quitting Cisco products because, or their entire companies, because they can't make sense of the licensing. That's come up yeah. multiple times in the Slack channel. People mm-hmm. saying exactly that. We are doing everything yeah. in our power to get away from Cisco due to the licensing challenges. Yeah. So, you know, I can, uh, I got to, again, I have to be a little cautious about that, right? But, uh, yeah, but, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, you're but, not saying it. We are. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, um, the, the hurdle there is, and the reason that everyone says that, right, is it's hard for not just the customer to understand what they need to do and make sure they get the right thing, but it's also hard um, at the bar level to make sure that you're getting the customer the right license. And the, you know, and the distributor understand. and the exactly. vendor. Exactly. And the vendor exactly doesn't understand it either. It so increasingly what we find is that the vendor employees themselves don't understand. And then the, I've even heard of people sitting in the room with the product manager who created the licensing and the person who created the licensing goes, this doesn't make any sense. I've heard stories <laughs> like that. So, I've not heard that, but I mean, yeah. I could definitely see it, you know, and, and there are, you know, they, they release documentation, all the vendors release documentation, right. About what you need to do and how you, you know, what features are where and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, but inevitably you end up having the licensing conversation with customers and, you know, for, for some products, it's more complicated than others, right. Because you have licensing that maybe applies to the number of uh, endpoint devices that you have in play. And there's also licensing for the product itself. And then maybe there are other features that the product has that potentially have licensing. So it's not to your point, right. Why it's complicated or why it's hard, what, you know, why it's challenging for customers to get it, um, to get what they need in, in the licensed world is because, because of those things, right. It's not, if it was a single set of licenses or a single license, if you will, that mm. impacted all of the pieces that they needed for their infrastructure. Okay. No big deal. But because you've got multiple layers of interlapping licensing that ultimately affect kind of like a Plachinko machine, kind of, you know, you just kind of, yeah. you know, it, what you can actually deliver in your environment depends on how you have all those things set. And making sure that what you want at the end of the day matches up with what you, you know, what you purchased um, is, is a challenge. Are customers concerned about how much information they're giving vendors because of the subscription services? Like they have these licensing servers which send all this information off to the vendor about what's being used and the configuration of all the boxes and all that sort of stuff. Are customers concerned about that from a privacy point of view? I've never heard anyone mention it, to be honest with mm. you. What about SaaS? So one of the things that we've sort of seen is a lot of people are taking products that used to be on-prem and pull them off-prem to be SaaS or companies are turning over to do things differently. So, you know, is that something? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was had lunch two days ago with the customer and they were talking about, you know, they're looking, they're a hospital customer and they have uh, an EMR, right? And they're looking to maybe go into a hosted, essentially almost as a service, right? So um, it's absolutely happening. There are lots of things that are moving that way um, for things that can be consumed. Customers do that, right? It works out well for them in a lot of cases um, because of skills because of uh, people demand because of all of the other major components. And, and really that shifts what they're doing from, Hey, I need to maintain this infrastructure to deliver this particular service to, Hey, I need to make sure that this service that's running out in some cloud, someone else's computer, right. Um, is mm. highly available and my employees can get to it and it's performant. Right. And that has some negatives too, right? Because you've, you've given up control over that side of the equation and you've given up visibility into that side of the equation. So it, it can be challenging, right? How do I tell? I've had a lot of customers, I mentioned the security piece as being a big piece of uh, what people are asking for. Visibility is another one, right? And so I had a, lot, a number of customers recently, like how do I tell whether or not the problem I'm seeing in my SaaS is me, them, or my transit? How do I tell? How do I, how do I determine whether or not they're having a problem, I'm having a problem, or the thing between the two of us is having a problem? And Billion and dollar can, businesses have been built yeah. on answering that question. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's a fair point. And, and they ended up selecting a particular product that was, um, had a feature in it that allowed them to compare their performance, what they were seeing for their environment with the sensors that they had loaded in their local network, right? To the general quote unquote anonymized pool of customers that were also running, you know, this visibility product going to this particular SaaS, right? So they could say, okay, looks like, you know, a whole bunch of people are having problems getting to, you know, Office 365, just as an example to pick on them, right? Um, so it's probably not just me and it's probably not my environment, right? So as, as you said many times, or at least I've heard you say many times, Craig, the meantime to innocence is a, is a major part of that, right? Yeah. Mm, it is. And, and also uh, plausible deniability sure. is, is an issue. Um, it, the meantime to innocence is certainly something that we actually have to be wanting to do. And you really, really want to be able to um, uh, get into a situation where um, you need to handle that. You need to be able to um, do those sorts of things, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I I have lost the battle. Your, your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN, and VPN tunnels, or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So how's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure, so you lean into Itential and it's going to help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And and all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so Itential does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that Itential is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, Itential is meant to be easy to use. For instance, Itential's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system, end-to-end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. Itential. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. And now back to today's episode. Remington, I want to dig into the value of VAR vendor relationships these days okay. because back in the day, it was kind of necessary if you wanted to get certain business, you'd lean into the vendor to throw some of that business your way. But if you weren't the favorite partner in the region, you know, yeah. you'd see one of your competitors getting all the business and you'd never get any deal referrals. And so it's like, why am I going through all the certification headaches and the partnership requirements to maintain this relationship when I'm not getting any business out of it? What's going on with that kind of thing in 2021? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a fun one. Uh, you know, it, it's certainly true, right? Um, and it depends. What's interesting about it too is it depends on what you're strong at. And and I, for some pieces, I I understand why the vendors do that, right? They you know, as a vendor, you have an interest in making sure that your customer ends up with a happy, positive experience at the end of the day with your product. So you're going to want to go to someone that you know is going to help put it in or make sure that they get the right solution and then it gets incorrect, right? Um, and that can vary depending on which product you're deploying, right? So for a large-scale data center deployment that maybe has some automation capabilities, you know as a vendor that you've had success with this particular partner. And so you want to make sure that, you know, you you push things that way, right? Um or, you know, a large wireless deployment or, or some other thing where there is, you know, there's some specialization there. This isn't just a, let's go put in a couple of access switches and run, you know, layer two all over the place. Um, and uh, so I understand why there's some drive that way. Uh, for the most part, though, and what I kind of see in the customer base that I'm in, you know, the people that are involved inside of the customer management executives and so forth are controlling you know, which vendor that you're using to, or which VAR you're using to actually source the materials and so, source the services. And so um, while it is certainly true, right, that having a, a strong relationship with a hardware manufacturer will allow you to get walked into business um, a lot more. It's about, at least in my experience, it's, it's about knowing the right people, right? And when those people move or, or leave or change jobs, making sure that you can stay connected to them, making sure that you um, can continue to to have them understand what your abilities are and how you can help them is, is more critical um, than necessarily what the hardware manufacturer is going to do in general. You know, I, I see them not really willing to push, you know, push for a particular, you know, uh, a particular VAR in the face of a customer's preferences in any way, shape or form. Right? Do, do you think a, a brand new VAR could build a practice in the area without having key hardware manufacturer relationships? Uh, I think you could, but it would, again, it would go back to um, you having to know people in Mm. 
the customer space, right? So, I mean, if you had strong relationships with people in executive or management roles um, and what will become your customers, I think you could you could make it happen. But that said, you know, there are minimal requirements, right? In order to get certain levels, there are, you know, all kinds of incentives that go around having higher levels of, of partnership with various hardware manufacturers. You know, and honestly, the harder part of that, I think, is really navigating who you want to be partnered with and and how to um, appease everyone, for lack of a better word, right? You know, you have to be careful about that uh, sometimes and and understand why, right? Everyone wants to succeed. Everyone wants to sell their product. But, um, you know, if you're trying to actually help your customer, make sure they get the right thing that they want and they need and, and that will be the best for them, that can mean that you can get into a crosswise situation with the hardware manufacturer, at that point, yeah, you're going to have a real difficulty growing um, with with that with that team. You know, are, are customers more open minded now, or are they demanding? They just want the the bigger, shinier version of what they had for the last ten years. I mean, if they have Cisco, do they always want new Cisco? Or if you come in and say, "We could do Cisco, but here's you know six other solutions that maybe would work," d- d- are they open minded? Yeah, um, some. Right. <laughs> that it depends, right? Kind of question the answer is is always the answer there. Yeah. So I mean, some are, yeah. And and we uh, you know, I think it's always valuable to to see what the the customer's temperature is on that. Um, you know, um, but in general, no. I mean, most customers want to refresh with what they know, they have skills in that area. And this all goes back to that thing that you know we were talking about before, Greg, with stability, hmm. right? If my options are to stick with something I know that works that does what I needed to do and I know how to troubleshoot it and I know how to call support and I know how to manage the tickets and I know how my maintenance is going to work and I know how the licensing is, although that's increasingly less the case, right? Because they change the licensing. But, you know, if I know that, I'm comfortable with it. I understand how it's going to work. I understand what it's going to do in my environment. I just want to keep that right where I've got it, right? I, I don't want to tear up the tear up the boat trying to um, make it go a little bit faster. But there definitely are customers for either cost pressures or they have a bad experience, right? Something goes wrong. They have a bad experience. Who are more willing to investigate other options? Um, and they, you know, they they do want to do that. I definitely have customers who do, you know, full scale bake offs, right? Hey, I want to mm. see how I want to go pull up the Forrester Wave or the Gartner Magic Quadrant. And, and well, you know why bake offs are so important? Because you can't get a refund. That's true. right. You can't take the product and then say, "Well, I'll buy it, but if it doesn't work, I'm going to send it back." And so you end up wasting all of this money up front because once you buy the product, you can't get a refund. And that is a problem, I think. I think more customers should take the view that, I'll tell you what, vendor, if you want to sell me this product, you can sell it to me. But in that contract, you're going to give me a refund if it doesn't work. And let's define what doesn't work means instead of doing a bake-off. And I think vendors would go for that increasingly because it means they don't have to waste huge amounts of pre-sales time, which they don't get to pay for, right? And getting it sorted out sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't um, I don't know the answer to that, right? I, I can't say that they wouldn't, right? And mm. I think as a customer, it would certainly be nice to have that capability. But, but, you know, countervailing that is, you know, if you get something deployed and the amount of effort and time you have a, as a customer have in getting it, you know, kind of deployed and then you get 30 or 45 days in, right? To like a, a larger scale switch refresh or something, tearing mm. that out is going to be, excruciating. You know, I mean, that's tons of hours. And especially if you go into areas like manufacturing or, or healthcare, right. Where your downtime windows are small or, or, you know, hard to come by and have lots of political difficulty. Yeah. You Mm. know, that's trying to tear out was, is tough, you know, so solving it on the front end is really your only like viable option. But that said for other use cases, I, I absolutely hear you. Right. Absolutely hear you. Um, on that for sure. Um, you, you know, on the vendor relationships component, you know, it's it's interesting too to see how that changes as as the people in the vendor relationship change, right? So a lot of manufacturers have a lot more um, shifting of, of who's supporting a particular customer or a region or you know you as a as a partner um, than what we necessarily do as a partner in supporting our customers, and so it's always interesting to handle that that as well, right? Um, mm. and that a lot of people don't necessarily. Think about that component or maybe don't talk about it as much, but, you know, hey, when, you know, HPE or, or Dell or whoever changes your, your salesperson, um, that changes the relationship that salesperson has with whoever you're buying that product from, right, as a VAR. And mm. that means that we also have a reset, right? Like we, we have to go rebuild that relationship with whoever that person is and make sure that they understand what we're doing, you know, the whole nine yards. And in some cases, they have ideas about what 
what they think needs to happen or how the interaction with the customer should go uh, versus the you know years or maybe even longer the decades right that you've had with this with this customer and their network and knowing what they're doing and uh, and that can make it interesting and fun too. So can I, can I ask a weird question? Absolutely. One of the things that I found in Reseller Life, and I spent a very long period of time working for a reseller. And I learned eventually that it's a burnout. There is no way to survive in reselling you know, as a reseller, as a pre-sales engineer and reseller, in my opinion, for more than a certain period of time, unless you're a certain type of person who hates yourself. Like Uh-oh. it's just working in a, in a reseller is actually a miserable experience because you're torn between what the customer needs, what the vendor needs and what your employer needs. And there's just too many deliverables here to stay happy for long, it was my experience. I couldn't find a way to balance all of those stakeholders in and keep my personal life sane. Do you think that reseller life is fundamentally a short term, you do it for a few years and then you get the hell out type thing? Or do you feel that you can do this indefinitely? Uh, so I think two ways to answer that question, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. um, for me personally, I don't think it's a do it forever necessarily. Um, and I hope I don't scare anyone that, that I actually work with or for on that front. Right. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, it's just one of those fundamentally at a certain point, anything you do is going to become, I think, uninteresting if it doesn't have a significant change and in the market's changing, the technology's changing, but to your point, right, the basic fundamentals of what it is I'm supposed to do are essentially always the same. So really yeah. all I'm doing is changing out who the people are that I'm communicating with and kind of what the widgets are and what their capabilities are that I'm trying to help put together into a, you know, a a puzzle. So um, that part of it is pretty much always the same. That's the blueprint. Um, And at some point that will no longer be quite as exciting. And I suspect I'll probably try to do something different. Um, I'm fortunate. And, and so to answer your question in general, right. In general, I think the answer is it's probably not a long-term play for a lot of people. Although there are a lot of people, you know, you talk to who have been in the industry for a long time. And um, so it's certainly possible but um, it is exhausting. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. It is exhausting to do. Uh, the pressures are high. You know, you get it kind of from all sides. It's, you know, it's it's a middle management kind of situation, you know, and and I had a boss one time. We don't have to necessarily put this in the podcast, but I, maybe it'll be relevant, I guess. You know, I, I applied for this middle management job and he's he went to the whiteboard. The guy that was interviewing me, he was going to be a peer of mine. He's like, why do you want this job? And he drew this little arrow and he said, you know, crap comes from this way and he drew an arrow down and he put me mm. in the middle, right? And he drew an arrow from below and he says, crap comes from this way. So why do you want to be right here? You know? And so, um, <laughs> well, the thing that I found question, was, but, um, you know, I, I just, I had three masters, all of whom felt that they owned everything about my work. And yeah. then I still had to try and make sure that I was delivering a profit. And I was also expected to be a technologist. It's an incredibly difficult life working for a reseller. And I don't, this is part of the reason that I think that resellers ultimately are unsustainable is because mm. you you have so many different stakeholders as a reseller that you can't deliver value to all of them and you always lose in the end. And that's miserable working life. Yeah. So I, I can definitely see how you, um, that viewpoint, right. And yeah. I'm not disagreeing necessarily. I, I definitely mm. can see that viewpoint. I also think though, there's the ability and this kind of goes back to the vendor relationship, right. Where, mm. um, you know, you have to be open and upfront and and honest and transparent with with the vendor about some of those things. And and a lot of times that can be diff- difficult at first. But once you get established, as long as they're not constantly rotating the person you're working with or the people you're working with or the teams that you're working with, you can reach. You know, yeah, maybe detente. That's a pretty is big the right word. Um, and the thing that know. we're learning is that vendors are downsizing those teams now. I've heard uh, stories from some vendors where forty percent of those teams have been sat been. Uh, encouraged to find new opportunities, shall we say, outside of the company. Yeah. And that, and that very well may be, um, mm. you know, I haven't experienced a lot of that, to be honest with you, but, um, but, you know, I think you can reach an understanding with, with a hardware manufacturer and that certainly helps on that front. Um, and in terms of the customer, right. Um, you know, I find with customers, the honest, the biggest thing, right. Is if you, if you are doing a genuine quality job as a technologist, and this goes to your point about being difficult to be a technologist with multiple masters. Um, but if you're doing a good job as a technologist, you're going to get a pretty good amount of leeway. And most people understand that other people are people and there are definitely people who don't, right? Um, but but they understand that people are people and that some mistakes will happen and that they can generally be fixed. And um, 
So it ends up not being terrible, although it is exhausting. I'm not going to say that it's not, you know, the constantly balancing those, those pressures, you know, what the manufacturer wants you to be selling at this particular moment with what the customer wants and, you know, how far over our skis are we on the new shiny thing, right? Um, it's definitely a concern, right? And um, that can definitely be challenging. You know, we're, we're reaching financial year end for some manufacturers. And so there's a lot of, you know, what, what's going on, what do you got kind of situation, um, which is always interesting. I'm very fortunate in the the particular company I work for. That's not what we do, and that's not how we operate. So, um, I think we we personally will have more um, sustainability there. But um, a lot of people do get burned out, and a lot of people are unhappy. I think in the role because it's it's difficult to balance all that. Yeah, I I th- I, I tend towards it's very like I loved my time there uh, while it was still fresh and interesting. But towards the end, the level of unhappiness was substantial. And you can learn so much in a very short period of time. Yep. But fundamentally, as a reseller engineer, I was just learning on customer networks. And the customers weren't getting value. They were just getting to train me. And they thought, and they were paying, you know, premium rates, $200, $400, $600 an hour. And all I did was turn up with a manual in my left hand and then work on the problem. Yep. And the, the the person who has to look after it for, with me is looking at me going like, you don't know anything more than me. And I go like, no. He said, so why are you doing it, not me? He said, I said, because I was sent here and that's the deal. And, you know, so much of reseller engineering is just not well done. The, I've had, And I've spoken to so many reseller engineers who just said like, you know, I've never worked on this particular low bouncer before, but they just sent me out and said, I have to do it. So I spent last <laughs> night reading the manual and today I'm doing it, right? Yeah. So, so, so Remington, actually expand on that idea. Is there a skills dearth in VAR engineering teams? Because uh, I've had that same experience Greg was just describing. I was the one getting sent out to go fix the thing. Had I ever worked on the thing? No. Training? No. Yeah. What was I doing? Googling, reading a manual, just trying to oh, figure yeah. it out. Um, but, but but it's twofold. I mean, if you're savvy enough, you can figure it out and get it done for the customer and move on. That's fine. But trying to hire people with enough of a clue to even get them to that part was hard. I, even yeah. a while back, it was hard to find people. Is it hard to find people now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is not just for us, right? So, you know, to, so a couple of pieces to pick out in there, right? If I may. So, um, you know, in terms of the, hey, I'm going there with the manual, right? And I have this conversation with customers, right? So if you pick something that is bright and brand new, right? you have to understand that you are going to be the first. And and I try to be transparent about that, right? Hey, we haven't done this, you know? So do I think we can do it? And I will be honest on how my confidence level and what we can do, right? Um, but but you're going to be the first, right? And, and number one, you don't need to be terrified of that necessarily because someone is always going to be first, right? So if you're picking something that's new, that has recently been released, and that's the platform you want to go with for feature reasons or personal interest reasons, or, or whatever the reasoning is, right? At the end of the day, that's what you picked. I'm going to salute and try to make sure that it worked well for you. If you're doing that, you have to understand that you're going to be the first and that we're going to end up figuring that out kind of on the fly. And as long as you go into that with the understanding that that's the case, no problem. Now, to the point about you know something that's not new, right? Um, and, and not having skills for it, um, that that does happen. Now, I, I can't say that we try to avoid it as much as possible, right? If you don't know what you're doing, we don't want you to be in a situation where you're interacting with a customer trying to get something done. Like that's just a bad, it's yeah, going to go poorly not for everybody. That's the not, reseller's was, sitting there saying, I need yeah. that money and I need it booked this week. And so someone's got to get out there and they just pick the person and send them out. Suck, sucks to be you, son. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that it isn't the case where it's like, hey, you need to just mm. go help, right? I'm not saying that at all, right, Greg? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not yeah. going there. But in terms of the dearth, there's absolutely um, a, a, a there's a skill gap right between either some people that are in the industry or indoor the number of people that are in the industry or, or in some cases both right um, you know unfortunately or fortunately the technology is changing relatively quickly and in order to stay with the technology you gotta you have to be actively pursuing education and you have to actively pursuing training or projects that are going to keep moving your skill sets forward and not everyone either chooses to do that or, or wants to do that, quite honestly. And that's fine, but it does become problematic at a certain point where it's like, hey, you know, we're six years further down the road from the last time that you've skilled up, you know, and now we don't have a lot of services opportunities for the things that you feel really good with because 
those things aren't being deployed anymore. Well, do, um, do, do, they, do they not want to skill up or are they so busy billing that they kind of don't have time to skill up? That's a, a good question too. And the answer is kind of sometimes both, right? I mean, the job to Greg's earlier comments, right? It, it can be tiring, right? There's a lot of pieces that are going into the mix. And so I think um, you can end up feeling relatively burnt out. And, you know, if you're, if you get time that even when you're not billing or working, you know, you're, you're going so fast most of the rest of the time that you kind of want to just zone out, you know, and I, I understand that. I totally get that. So it's hard to keep yourself motivated and going through the training. But in terms of the number of people too, is also a challenge. And it's not just us, right? I mean, our customers have the exact same challenges, you know, trying to get quality skilled people. I, I hear you, Ethan, and that it's it was that way years ago. It seems like the entire time that I've been in, you know, IT, it seems like there's always been a shortage of people um, or at least high skilled people um, to do the things. I don't know that that's going to end, to be honest with you. I've just accepted at this point that it's not. And um, it, it feels worse than ever, though, just and that's anecdotal. But this the um, number of open positions, the desire for senior people, junior people seem somewhat easier to come by. Senior people with experience in whatever the skill sets are seem tougher to come by. Just more openings, longer lead times, people saying, man, I went through a stack of resumes and it's just there isn't anybody that can do this job. Where are the people? Well, uh, that's true. But I also think, you know, to the earlier point, it's gotten more complicated and mm. it's not something that I feel like everyone. No, I, just, really no I disagree with that. It is. Yeah. You're not wrong in the sense that it's gotten more complicated, but things have gotten a lot simpler. So just, just to counter your, that point. Yes. There's so many new technologies as software defined this Python, but you also don't have to work with IPX and Banyan vines and Apple talk and SNA. Right. That's it's, yeah. No, no, that's true. I, I guess yeah. when I say it's more complicated, I mean from the perspective of there are, I think, right, and and I I will admit that I um forgive me, Greg, I entered IT at a point where there wasn't much of that left. Um, yeah, when yeah. I got here, so I can't speak to what the world was like at that point, to be honest with you. But um, but to be a senior person means that you have to have skills and capabilities across multiple platforms, multiple types of things. You have to understand how they fit together, how they work, how to quickly troubleshoot them, how to operate them, how to upgrade them, how to interconnect them, what the ramifications are of changing, yeah. you know, from a but that's a dead end. So, I agree with you. I don't disagree. And that I, back in the day when I was that person working for a reseller, I was really good at Token Ring and Apple Talk and Fiddy and ATM. And there was a lot, those, those technologies were the same. The complexity is the same. That just What's inside the complexity window changes over time, but the complexity remains roughly the same. So today, if I was to go back to working for a reseller, I would have to know AWS and Azure, and sure. I'd know how to do some scripting and some orchestration. I'd need to know a bunch of orchestration tools as well as knowing, but I don't need to know much MPLS anymore because that's only in the service provider market, not inside most enterprise networks. And I don't need to know uh, OSPF to EIGRP to IGRP like I used to back in the day. Now it's much mm -hmm. more BGP and OSPF sort of thing. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that. I, I guess my general comment there and, and trying to frame it up, I don't disagree that the complexity is probably the same, right? The complexity level doesn't ever get reduced, right? We're still no. trying to deliver the uh, solution. Yes. My point, I think, is really more the uh, disagregation of a lot of things means that there's more interaction surfaces. And, yes. and navigating yeah. successfully the interaction surfaces means that's more complicated. And, and this that is, means a senior person has to handle that. And, and that this is why customers need to do this, not outsource it to somebody who's not, like you as a stakeholder can't do that for customers. And in my general sense of this is this is something that customers need to do for themselves. Oh, I feel completely the opposite. I think that's exactly yeah. why you look to someone because yeah. the, when the interaction surfaces are complex, you need someone who understands the nuance of them and can apply your problem to that. If you can get that in-house, I mean, you're lucky to find someone who's been able to dive deeply enough to get a handle on that. You probably don't have that in-house. And so you go to a VAR, someone who's worked with enough of these products to kind of have a clue about, as you said earlier, Remington, how you're going to put the puzzle together. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased, right? So I'm sitting on one side of the equation talking about it, but... Um, you know, I've seen it go both ways. And to your point, though, Greg, I understand what you mean, right? This is a mm. potential critical function for your company, your business, right? This is this is doing it well means you get to differentiate yourself from your competitors, right? I totally get that argument, and I mm -hmm. understand why customers would want to bring that in house. If I'm if I'm paraphrasing your argument accurately, and I I think that is 100 percent correct, right? Um, that said, 
you know, I go out and interact with these folks. And I think sometimes that going into a model more like to your car analogy from before, you know, most of us don't do a whole lot on our cars anymore, right? You just, oh, mechanic, right? Like, I'm not even going to try, right? Like, I'm not going to go out there and attempt to do whatever. And really what matters at that point is I need to have an accurate and reliable check engine light, essentially is what it boils down to. <laughs> I need service. And I just need to know that I need to go get service. And yes. I don't have a clue what happens after that, but I know that I need to go get service. And I'm not necessarily arguing for that point right at this juncture, but I'm saying for some customers, they would be better served because if not, then they end up perpetuating their own problem or causing themselves more difficulty. Now, um, and that is where resellers do have to start to cope with tools like Meraki and cloud-managed networks. That is literally there is an engine light. And the customer doesn't even really have to understand it to make it work, right? They just have to say, I need this policy, this strategy, this AI policy. And that, I think, is a transition that eventually sees the reseller market reduced dramatically because I don't need you to handle all those contact services because it's all wrapped up in some sort of SaaS service managing the network. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I don't disagree with you from that perspective Mm -hmm. either, but... um, you know, I do a lot with Meraki and I've done some large scale Meraki deployments, you know, just to pick at that one for 30 seconds. And, and it's true, right? So the hurdle comes there and just like all of these, uh, I'm going to call them all overlays, right? All, all attempts to, to, actually, I'm going to back up even further and say, this all goes back to the first thing that you said around the complexity, right? The complexity never goes away. The complexity no. is always there, right? Yeah. So the hurdle comes when, when you attempt to do something that doesn't fit within the clearly defined operational model that the manufacturer has put forward for that product, then you're, then you're kind of in uncharted, uncharted territory, right? And, you know, having dealt with a lot of these situations, your ability to get um, control over that situation, to remediate that situation, or even have an understanding of what exactly is happening is now reduced. So yes. Um, yeah, 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 that yeah. makes it hard, you know, and that makes it complicated again. And having people who have potentially been in the situation and helped navigate it, or at least say, hey, look, you can't, you can't do that. Like, this is literally not going to work for you. You're going to have to figure out another way to structure mm-hmm. this is potentially helpful. But you're absolutely right. It does take away a lot of that, you know, and, and for areas where um, you can go reboot the device, right? If it goes down, it's not totally mission critical. Um you know, situations where the the level of of blast radius is relatively small, and that and the blast radius isn't going to be totally detrimental to your your to your business. Totally get it. Yep, hundred percent. That's yeah. going to go away. But for areas where it's really important and you really need to know what's going on, I don't think that's ever going to go away. Well, Remington, this has oh. been a interesting conversation. Getting kind of the, the lay <laughs> of the land here. I, I don't know that we solved any problems exactly. No, but to, to, I felt like I complained. But Sorry. well, it, so the, the emphasis that you had on just the, the, the increasing complexity, or maybe it's a recycled flavor of complexity like we had back in the day and and so on. I, I don't know if it's any harder than it ever was, because I, I remember a lot of the same challenges when I was doing the VAR life thing. Uh, only for me, that experience goes back you know, two decades, so... You know, move the chairs uh, around and uh, put put them all back down. And okay, I've got the same complexity I had maybe twenty years ago, just with different products and different vendors. I don't know, mm. but the you know, the bigger thing to me, Remington, is it feels like you got no lack of work to do. I mean, you you guys are being called upon to do a lot of work for a lot of customers. It's not like it sounds like you got more than you can. Uh, cope with in a, in a sense, which I guess from a business perspective is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, we are, we're really pretty busy right now, um, which is good. We're happy to be busy. Right. Um, but there's definitely no shortage of things to do. Um, that's for sure. Um, do you get paid extra for being busy? Do, do I personally? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely like the harder you work, in. do you get paid uh, more? Or do you, not putting that in. Sorry. Sorry, I'm just it. <laughs> no, yeah. Don't answer so, that question. No, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> well, Remington, if you're active uh, socially on the internet, can people follow you? How could they get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, I'm not. I'm pretty tinfoil hat, to be uh, to be honest. I, I do have a Twitter account. It's at localpref underscore net, uh, which is also my uh, my preferred blogging domain, localpref.net. Um, but I don't do a ton there either. Um, I'm trying to hopefully get back into doing some more of that as, as my projects hopefully slow a little bit in the coming months. But um, 
that's probably the best place. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me by name on LinkedIn. Um, but uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Remington. This has been it's been enlightening. It's been uh, been enlightening, Greg. I don't know if your mind was changed about much stuff. I, I kind of got out of this conversation what I what I anticipated. Did Remington change your mind at all on anything? Um, I still feel that I, I have a, an oft stated opinion that resellers become less and less relevant as we go forward. Partly because some of it goes to SaaS, partly because things like DevOps mean for a certain group of customers they'll bring skills back in-house instead of outsourcing it to resellers like they have done in the past because it doesn't make sense. I think some of them will increasingly start to buy products where they just access them from the web. And I think also the move, uh, the post-pandemic world means campus networks are less relevant, branch networks are less relevant, and we'll see a, a different sort of environment. So it's chipping away at the nature of the infrastructure and how we operate it. And I think also companies are taking a much more serious look at their IT and saying, we have to take technology much more seriously. So CEOs of companies are starting to say, we shouldn't be dealing with a third party um, of unknown, unvariable quality. There's no certification for resellers to say that they're competent, you know, in the same way that when you go to a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, there's no, no, there's no guarantees you're going to get. a comp- And we talked about that earlier on. And I think that's becoming more and more evident. And the vendors are also pulling back from supporting resellers because they can now go directly to the customer via online tools. So the tax, the SaaS platforms, the Windows support, the conferences, the training, that's all done with the vendor, not with the reseller. And the reseller to me starts to feel increasingly like a legacy way of doing business in the sense that back in the 1980s, just distributing products globally was a massive problem and you needed to have a system and people on the ground who could do that for you because if you were a company, but the internet changes all of that. And the new way, because we're so used to distributing products easily and at speed now in the 2020s, we don't need distributors and warehouses and resellers to deliver a product to a customer anymore. And indeed, Tesla shows you that, Apple shows you that, yeah, I think th- th- there's a lot of it depends that's tied to uh, what you're saying. Your logic follows for a certain customer in a certain yeah. consumption model. But uh, l- l- so let's turn it over to the audience. Hey, there's a, about a thousand ways you can follow up with us. And one mm-hmm. of them is literally our follow up form. If you go to packetpushers.net slash FU for follow up, you can let us know exactly what your VAR relationship is today. Or if you're working for a VAR, what your customer relationships are today and the kind of work that you're doing. We want to hear all of that. If you'd rather Twitter, at Packet Pushers, we're on LinkedIn. You can get our attention there as well. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this because this is a really interesting uh, market segment that no matter what your opinion of where it's going, it's changing. What's happening at VARs is, is changing. If you like all this kind of stuff, you can find all of our fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. If you click on the subscribe link, it's going to take you to a page where every show in our network is there and you can consume it on the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, if you would like to join a community of engineers that are chatting about technical problems, join our Slack group. That's at packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read our simple rules and then join. And uh, there's over 1,750 engineers that are in our general channel in that Slack group right now. And uh, last housekeeping thing, newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Sign up for it. You get the very best of the internet, everything that we've found that we think is important or interesting for you to know as an IT engineer. We share with you weekly in that newsletter. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.